Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast is scheduled for one fall. Hey everyone, and welcome to Smarten Up, an education in professional wrestling, a podcast hosted by partly me, Drew Zalitas. And sticking the landing over here on the other side of the intro is me, Stefan Claypool. Sometimes these things, these, these things get away from us a little. It's smooth as butter. Yeah, um, yeah you, you do your best. Sometimes you're not always uh, the best talker. And that's what, exactly what we're going to talk about. <laughs> now that was smooth as butter. Yeah, I can't believe that's not butter. Thank you. Uh because we're going to be talking about uh, managers today, uh, a, a sort of key figure uh, in wrestling. We've talked about it a few times, but sort of sometimes, you know, we, we've had a few, we've talked about referees, we've talked about commentators, but sort of who are the other people who are not wrestlers who mm-hmm. put on a wrestling show? And managers sort of also fill that role of being part of the show, but not actually wrestling. And the, the idea of the wrestling show is is important here because you have the match as the, the central crux of the form, but then you have this sort of augmented product around that with the, the commentary and the uh, sort of colorful characters that inhabit this world. And a, a manager uh, occupies a, a very special place in that pageantry of... Uh, I'm losing my metaphor. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the manager is very important, and, and we'll, we'll get into a number of reasons why, but one of the the key sort of defining characteristics of the manager is he is, he or she, uh, is in the world of wrestling, like the referee, like the commentator, um, a complementary piece that can, when deployed effectively have a tremendous impact on getting the core piece of the product over in a way that maybe it couldn't down its own merits. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's in some ways they fill almost a utility role in the sense that, uh, they can be a lot of different things mm-hmm. and they could do a lot of different things. In some ways it is, <clears throat> excuse me, pure personality, uh, we think of wrestling characters, uh, and we've talked about gimmicks in the past and the importance of like powerful personalities, but you know, not all wrestlers are capable of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some wrestlers are just extremely good in the ring, but maybe are not uh, good otherwise. Or there are people who are not good wrestlers, but are still good entertainers. It's sort of managers can sort of fill that in-between space. Uh, and so I feel like they often get, they can be very formulaic and very tropey, mm-hmm. but they can also push the boundaries, I think, more than a lot of others because there's a relative freedom there, uh, because they aren't, you know, actually having to do the sort of wrestling portion of the show. They can do a lot of other things um, and sometimes enter in storylines in really interesting ways. Uh, they can be the pieces around that help build a storyline outside just two people uh, or, you know, just a few wrestlers. Sometimes they might just be literally an object that becomes a sort of 
passed between different people, uh, but they can also represent more than that. So uh, it's like an extra tool in the in the wrestling promoter's handbook. Now, it, it might be kind of self-evident from the way we refer to them as managers, but it's worth drilling <laughs> for, for a minute on sure. <laughs> what the the ostensible function of the manager within the, the kayfabe story right. world is within wrestling. And if you kind of look historically, and I guess we'll, we'll spin up the Wayback Machine now. I call it a Wayback. We just set it, turn it on, open the door, and there we are. Or were, really. Um, yep. Um, if we think about this historically, a, a manager's roots as a character, as an archetype, would have been in uh, almost the idea of a, a, a sports agent or a booking agent. Uh, for athletes uh, back back in the day. So uh, ostensibly, the manager of a wrestler is the person who is negotiating with a promoter, who is getting their wrestler on the card, who is figuring out how to get their wrestler work. In the territory days, sometimes this was literal. Sometimes it was just figurative and kayfabe. But the idea of this representative or agent that was functioning on behalf of the wrestler, uh, fulfilling what, at least on a surface level, was a, a legitimate role with a parallel in real-world sports. Right, uh, which is where you, you sometimes get these sort of funny uh, other terms uh, for the manager. Sometimes it is agent. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of popular one now with Paul Heyman is advocate, yep. which I always find uh, delightful. There's a certain, you know... Paul Heyman does not do anything by accident and advocate sounds, uh, has a certain legal tinge to it, yeah. uh, like an advocate in court. And I know, and I don't think this is me reading too much into it. Uh, knowing Paul Heyman, I believe he's doing that to emphasize his Jewishness. Um, <laughs> like, I think that's purposeful. Like, I don't, I, I don't think I'm being, uh, sort of out of line here. He's done, and he's done that yeah. in promos. He's done this in promos before, where he's called up his own Jewish heritage. Um, he's the Maury Levy of wrestling. A little, yeah. There's a you know, and I and again, not, not, I love to, that. not to drill too deep on Paul yet, because we, we can no no no, we'll here. get there. And again, and I there, maybe there's a whole other thing about Jewish wrestlers, just because I, I told you about David Starr, yes, you the did. guy I loved on the independent scene. Um, love that guy. Uh, anywho, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, they, you know, the name, yeah, suggests that this person, they have to have a sense of authority over the wrestler so we can, as an audience, immediately sort of give them credence, give them credibility. Uh, if they're just a guy or girl with the person, you know, the audience could say, well, why do I care about them? Like, how do they have any sort of, you know, uh, impact over the story? But if they have some sort of role in creating, like you said, booking them, making decisions, how they'll fight, suddenly we're sort of all, you know, already more invested in that. Um, and then there's the simple fact that, you know, wrestling always likes to play with its own business. Uh, you know, the, so many storylines in wrestling are about wrestling as a business. So it would kind of make sense that these ancillary characters are 
you know, business people like a manager or an agent, um, rather than just like a friend who hangs out with them, though that's been used before as well. Uh, but, you know, giving them a, a, you know, within kayfabe, a business role suddenly kind of fits into the world a bit more, I think. And, and there, there is, uh, again, we think about historical precedent here. The, the guy who really set the archetype of what the wrestling manager was did so by actually being a manager okay. of a professional wrestler, <laughs> and, and that was Billy Sandow. Um, mm-hmm. who was with uh, uh, Edge Strangler Lewis and Tootsmott, <laughs> part of the Gold Dust Trio. And th- there is, I think, an entire episode on the, the pre-NWA history of wrestling and specifically what these three guys did to, tr- to bridge that gap between kind of the Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt days of the legitimate sport uh, onto like the Luthez days of the uh, sort of protected showmanship. Uh, Lewis and Sandow and Mott really created a large part of the structure of what became wrestling as a form. And where Sandow in particular played his role was he was, Sandow himself had been a wrestler, um, physically an intimidating guy. He was Lewis's manager. He was the guy who was booking wrestlers to face Lewis, who was the champion of the world for for many, many years. He was the guy who was barking for Lewis. He was the guy who (laughs) would accompany Lewis to the ring as sort of this this backup character. Um, and, And the things that he did in that role would become the archetype of what a wrestling manager is, even when the actual business components of that fell away and it truly did just become a character. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, you already see some of the later things that will become important there. Uh, Like you mentioned, uh, being a former wrestler himself uh, is you know, becomes something that happens again down the line with certain managers. Uh, Again, they sort of have a built-in credibility there. Um, You know, if somebody maybe gets too old to perform at a high physical level, uh, but they're obviously still very knowledgeable, like, you know, they can kind of keep them around. Um, But yeah, I, I, I think, you know, that's just like so much other things that we've talked about, you know, it has a root in an actual managerial role, Mm -hmm. uh, just like so many other elements of wrestling. Um, And yeah, managers uh, are certainly no different. Um, They sort of later on take on obviously less of a, uh, as you said, more performed character role. And I think this gets us into this transition of, we've talked about the sort of kayfabe, uh, reasoning behind using a manager, you know, mm-hmm. someone to to sort of do your bookings and things. But then there's, again, the storytelling potential from that. And the storytelling reason being uh, multiple. One, again, the multiple storylines you can tell, uh, you know, if you have some of that backstage booking dealing, suddenly that can be part of your story. Uh, and then there's the simple fact that uh, managers are, you know, good talkers. They are good at getting people excited, getting people angry or happy. And so they could often fill that role, uh, especially in the territory days, um, you know, when you're constantly meeting new characters and people are traveling through, the manager can provide some cohesion, like, okay, if that manager is 
a villain, whoever he supports, I don't like. He's brought and in so, this guy from out of town that I've never seen before, but by association, I know he's a bad guy. Exactly, exactly. The manager becomes shorthand, uh, you know, for for the audience. Mm-hmm. And if you can get people to hate the manager, uh, and if the manager's good at that, uh, then you can already, yeah, kind of, you know, friends and enemies by association. Um, and that was really big in the territory days, uh, again, because you had a more more traveling going on. And so you needed to constantly re-educate your audiences. And managers were a really easy way to do that. And the, the two sides of that coin, I think, when you get to the, the function of the manager, one is to to draw heat or to draw attention, draw a reaction. And many, many managers, uh, and certainly the great managers, have done this by being really effective mouthpieces for the wrestlers that they manage. Um, but then kind of the, the flip side of that is a manager who has associated with extremely credible acts over the course of a career can buy the transitive property of the wrestling manager pass that credibility on to a new wrestler that they're managing so you you will have a a wrestler who has been with a group or with a uh, a manager for a period of time that wrestler departs the manager as that heat magnet then takes a new charge under the wing and just by the mere fact of being associated with that manager people look at that new wrestler and say okay if this manager is going to give him the time of day then clearly he's worth paying some attention to yeah um that in some ways harkens back to our discussion about titles mm-hmm. um, and championships and this sort of like, you know, if there is a sort of uh, legacy connected with it, it can sort of, again, this sort of transitive property pass on from one to the other. Um, and yeah, managers also can have that thing. Again, this sort of like, if this, then this. If, yeah. he, if he has him and that guy, I like him, then I will like this other guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that doesn't always work. The math is never that easy. Uh, but, and and you know, you history can... is full of examples of where it hasn't worked well. <laughs> Exa- absolutely. But, you know, you know, from the booker's perspective or the writer's perspective, you know, it makes sense. You know, let's, you know, what's the easiest way we can try to do this? And... You know, that might be the easiest way is like, hey, everybody hates this guy or everyone likes this guy. Let's just have them hang out together. So there, um, there's, there's the like and the hate components. And, and there, <laughs> there are examples that we can think of of uh, babyface managers and, mm-hmm. and re- babyface wrestlers who have had managers. Um, mm-hmm. But most of the time, at least in the modern context, when we talk about managers – we tend to talk about heels more than baby faces. Um, I think if you're you're dealing with um, you know valets, maybe it's a little different, um, although not always. But certainly the when we talk about the great managers of wrestling history, most of them are bad guys. Um, and I I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that is, or why the manager as heel would be a more it's natural a good, fit. It's a good point. I mean. I think there's a couple of of reasons I would I would wager. Number one would be, especially in the WWE context, but in a lot of contexts, the babyface is sort of a man of action, uh-huh. right? Like 
Um, and this isn't always the case. Like there have been a lot of counter examples of like, you know, oh, he was so great. He got over, he was very popular because he was such a good talker. Um, but in, in general, I think, you know, the villains are, it, you know, just think about movies. Like the villain's the one who's going to do like this pontificate a monologue at the end of the movie to tell you their secret plan. Right. Mm -hmm. While our hero is a man of action. He's just going to save the day. Um, you know, she's going to stop the, the problem. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it. Um, you know, a manager is inherently talking, not fighting. Mm -hmm. And so there's already a sense of you are not living up to the sort of uh, ideals of this world where we solve our issues not through talking. We solve our issues in the ring. We solve our issues with fighting. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, and then the other part I would wager is... Um, the, the sort of extracurricular activities managers get involved in. Uh, you know, managers can also, we haven't talked about it quite yet, but managers can, of course, also serve the role uh, during matches as well, not just as talk pieces, but they can be distractions. They can help a heel cheat. Uh, so there's a lot more opportunities as a heel, as a manager, to use your skills and use your abilities uh, in a heel context. Um, but... You know, I think that that's just a smaller reason, but, but it's I do, like, yeah. I do think that's an important distinction to make, though, because the manager can get involved in a contest, and certainly the manager can get physically involved uh, where necessary. And there's a, a long tradition of managers getting their comeuppance by getting uh, the hell beaten out of them. Um, mm -hmm. But it's there's an important distinction between a manager role and what I would think of as like an enforcer role or a heater role. Mm. So like if you're thinking yeah. about like DX, um, <laughs> China was not the manager of DX. China was the enforcer of DX. There was an implicit right. physical threat there uh, in terms right. of the degree to which she might get involved. Whereas managers, the stereotype of the manager is kind of the, the dumpy, out-of-shape guy who runs his the, mouth a lot. It's the weasel, right, it's Bobby Heaton? It's he Bobby was Heaton. the weasel, and, that's, yeah. and they called him the weasel. And the weasel because, you know, again, you're you're shirking out. A weasel doesn't get into a physical conversation. He, he uses, you know, tricks and, you know, guile mm -hmm. to escape rather than, you know, physical strength. Yeah, yeah so, so just the idea of the manager as... Um, again, someone who might be physically involved, but is not a physical threat. It again, it yes. se it separates the wrestler as a participant in the match from the manager. The manager is going to talk. The manager will define character. The wrestler is the one who's actually going to to get in the ring and and do the fighting. Um, and there again, there there are always exceptions to these rules. Uh, but in when you look at the great manager wrestler pairings through the years, um, that that's one that is generally pretty consistent. Yeah. So, and I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I, I mean, part of it might just be convention as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think there's also a tendency to, at least in WWE, to like force a babyface to sort of make it on their own. Yeah. Um, they aren't sort of, you know. Because again, a manager can be a crutch, um, and uh, you know maybe there's the sense that if you require that manager, you're not sort of good enough to lead the company or something, or you know be the face of the promotion. Um, you know that might be part of it too. Um, 
but it's it's weird though and and again yeah the, none of these are hard and fast rules and these things can switch and you know uh, a manager just like a someone else can you know flip sides and turn from villain to heel or or, or heel to, to face and, and vice versa uh though that's less often yeah uh managers seem to kind of be more consistent and i think it's because of that role you mentioned earlier and we talked about earlier that they can sort of come to represent you know villainy or or heroism and then we can use that shorthand so you don't want them to be switching them as much well there there's also an element of look the the manager is not there to be the star of the show the manager is there to put the spotlight on the wrestler and therefore the manager's existence and the role that that manager plays is necessarily complementary to his charge and when you talk about face turns and heel turns you, you can think of a couple where the manager really made a sharp turn, and the one that immediately comes to mind is, um, you know, Paul Bearer turning on the Undertaker. Uh, but more often than not, it's the wrestler turning on the manager as a signifier of uh, a change in alignment. So in you know the the mid '80s, Andre the Giant as this beloved hero, he turns heel when he associates with Bobby Heenan. And the right. moment where Andre becomes a beloved babyface again is where he casts off Heenan and clubs him over the head and throws him out of the ring. Um, yeah. And and Heenan is there as the facilitator, but ultimately it's the way that Andre engages with him that defines him as a character, while Heenan is the constant. Hmm. And I th- yeah. Yeah. No, I, I dig that. Um, that also gets to this sort of other level of the manager's role, I mean, that again might come back to your question. Um, in a lot of the, you know, there's a certain dominance, at least in a heel manager, of like, sometimes the character, and this was especially big if you were like a huge sort of, some of these big names like Heenan or later Paul Heyman, like sometimes actually they were really who, they were truly who the face was feuding with. The physical, the 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 wrestler was literally just their sort of avenue to do their bidding. Um, I mean, uh, especially in his earlier, more evil days, uh, going back to the undertaker and Paul Heyman, like Paul Heyman or Paul, uh, Paul bear, uh, Paul, Paul bear, again, one of the greatest names easily in wrestling history. Uh, Paul bear literally controlled the undertaker, right? Like through the magical urn that he had his eighties. Um, it's a crazy time. Um, and so like, whether it was that like literal control or just that fact that like, you know, Heenan had his stable built around him. Paul, Paul Heyman ended up having a stable, the dangerous Alliance. So it was like, that guy was the real villain. All these other names were just the sort of like people who got in the way. Um, so there was also a sense of like it's almost like you're the the big bad. It's again like it's like a James Bond villain. Uh-huh. He's the like the real villain is the guy who's the brains. Like uh-huh. you know, Jaws is just the muscle. Yeah. Right. Um, or or Batista in the the Spectre um, uh-huh. as as Mr. Jinx um, to to bring us back to wrestling. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's I think that is was became very common. Not always, but sometimes uh where especially with the bigger names especially with like Heyman or uh and heenan uh or even like even though he would wrestle sometimes like kevin sullivan in the dungeon of doom yep. uh um stuff like that yeah 
So I, th- I think we could we could make a case study of Bobby Heenan as what what it is to be a wrestling manager. And and Heenan, you know, as of this recording, passed away not too long ago um, after a long battle with health pro- with uh, I think it was throat cancer. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, passed away, but Bobby is. There are very, very, very few managers that you could argue are on his level um, or or above him, and, and Paul Heyman is maybe the only one that comes to mind. But I think Bobby deserves a bit more credit for defining in the um, kind of modern era of wrestling what the function of a manager was supposed to be in the AWA and then m- more notably in the WWF. Um and I think it's worth taking a little time to try to understand why he was so effective at what he did. Um, and I'll, I'll kick it off. Um, Bobby, Bobby understood that his job was to be hated and to draw that attention. And he was not afraid to be hated for um for his worst qualities instead of his mm-hmm. best like bobby was not afraid to make himself look like a fool oh yeah and that goes to he wasn't afraid to get his comeuppance yeah a lot like for how effective like you know you you have to sort of you know in order to be an intimidating villain you have to have some victories and like I, he didn't win too much Um, like most of, you know, your moments of thinking of Heenan are him like really getting, you know, uh, part of the expression showing his ass, uh, kind of thing. Right. Like Mm -hmm. really like looking the fool, but that was the point. Um, yet he was also so good at being able to build himself back up because of his sort of smarmy confidence. Um, because they would take the time to sort of build up his, the wrestlers in his stable, whether it was through kind of squash matches, um, but those squashes meant more because you would have Heenan there to sort of talk it up, uh, make it seem more important than if you just sent out, you know, Big John Studd or whoever to go, mm-hmm. you know, beat up some local guy. Um, and so it was that dual effectiveness uh, to, yeah, like constantly get shown up, like all the time, like, and it. And it was great because, and he was also so good at losing. Yeah, I think helped. Like when he lost, it was fun to see him get really angry. Like he never blew it off. He never like when he had to dress up in a weasel suit because he's called the weasel. Yeah. Like he was so upset, and it's childish, but that's what you wanted to see. If he was just like pouting, we wouldn't really care. He understood that the best way to be effective is to care when you lose and we get so little of that now like everything is water off you know someone's back but he cared and he held grudges which was amazing like he would he would remember things for for Uh, 20 years he would remember things yeah yeah so yeah i think that was it like like you said his sort of like to to sort of always care uh, and and to fail and to care when he failed. So that's what you wanted to tune in for to see him fail, and he knew that. 
and there was a, a great dynamic because like and I, I alluded to um and and you I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about like seeing him fail and the ways he would fail. Um one of I think in terms of what Bobby did and where you see him most clearly in that regard is actually if you look at him in the AWA and the work he did with Nick Bockwinkle. Because Bockwinkle, the AWA champion for a very long time, um, I, I love Nick Bockwinkle. He was just a perfect, arrogant heel champion. <laughs> and, and the kind of guy that when you saw him and the way he presented himself, there was nothing about him that looked like he needed a manager. He could talk. He could wrestle. He was handsome. He presented himself as this arrogant character. But when you would see him lose a match, he would lose a match. And mm-hmm. that, that was the defeat that he could bear. He could bear athletic defeat. But there was no sense of Bockwinkle's going to get humiliated because Bockwinkle's not going to stretch himself far enough as a character to be humiliated. And when you see a lot of modern uh, heels who try to be like the cool heel or the arrogant heel, they'll only put themselves out there so far. Um... And that means that when when they fail, they can only snap back so far. And what Bobby did with Bockwinkle was he, on behalf of Bockwinkle, stretched. So that when when Bockwinkle lost, it was bad for Bockwinkle because he uh, he lost his championship. He lost whatever. When Bobby (laughs) lost, it was bad because Bobby (laughs) was embarrassed. He was so humiliated. And that, to me, is almost more interesting than like, ah, Bobby's managing King Kong Bundy. Mm, yeah and and so it's like it's motivation and he found personal motivation in his character of a manager sort of beyond what we had seen before he wasn't just like financially invested in these characters you know like they were there was always an investment but for, for him it was it was always personal and so you know the, the and he, so especially for him, it's like we are well beyond manager having anything to do with business relationships. Oh, yeah. It was just about so many of the feuds involving Heenan and the Heenan family were like just his personal vendettas or his personal sort of goals, and that became so much more effective, I think, for audiences because you know it was always in service of of a sort of very human motivation. Uh, his motivations were always very human and also very uh, weak because of their humanness. It was not like, you know, it was, you know, some, it was petty sometimes. <laughs> uh, and that's great. Like that is so wonderful. Um, you know, there, and again, he didn't win that much. And so that even in itself fed into storylines. Uh, Heenan as the one who drives the story. Because when we think about like, some of the the great regional managers are the guys who who were involved in that era. Um, you think about like Gary Hart in WCCW, or you think about Jim Cornette and and what he was doing. Um, you know that they were the centers of those stories that were being told in a way that you know like that I, I like JJ Dillon, but JJ Dillon was not the heart of the Horseman, um, and. Uh, Jimmy Hart would would have his moments, but it, it was there was not that feeling of okay, 
this this guy is the core of the story that's being told. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to pause for a second because I think there's there are some later day managers that we definitely want to talk about. But before we sure. do, um, I want to take a minute and digress to talk about uh, women as managers and the Absolutely. role that they play, and and specifically like the distinction in presentation between a woman manager and right. a valet or a woman accompanying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a valet. No, no, um, sorry. Valet. Valet. Oh. No, no. Um, I, I kid, of course. Uh, you know, yeah, we, we've got to, you know, talk about their, for a long time uh, and still today, like there were, you know, a lot of times the woman accompanying uh, a male wrestler to the ring was sometimes not even referred to as a manager. As you say, it was maybe a valet. So, and when you think valet, it's like, so, or like, what's her job? And they didn't really have a job. There wasn't even the pretense of a job. They, like there was with the manager, uh, there was no pretense. They were purely there as eye candy for the audience. Perhaps they would get involved in the match, perhaps using their eye Mm -hmm. candy-ness as a distraction. Uh, you know, hopping up on the ring and showing off some gams or whatever. Um, but, you know, it really wasn't until maybe the 90s that we got started getting women maybe being presented as managers, though even then it was still mostly a pretense for someone to wear not a lot of clothing. Yeah, and I mean, like, you, like you, would hear, you would hear them talk about Miss Elizabeth as a manager, but she never right. really performed any managerial functions. The first, like, yeah. real wi- woman manager I can think of is Sherry Martell, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. who, who was a heat magnet. And, and she was a mouthpiece. Yep, yeah. and she, she gave credibility to the guys that she was with, yeah. and that's very, very famously why she was paired with Shawn Michaels when he went out to be a, a solo was... star. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um but yeah, in into the '90s, and e- even then, the the ranks are thin. Yeah, and the, again, this there's always this pretense. We brought it up. I think we brought it up in the tag team episode. Maybe mm-hmm. that was it, or the or the gimmick episode. Uh, but the Terry Invitational Tournament. Yep. Uh, which was uh, if you didn't listen or uh, forgot, I don't know how you could forget the TIT, the Terry Invitational <laughs> Tournament, uh, where Terry Runnels her managerial services were actually on the line mm-hmm. uh in 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 a match uh between edge and christian and the hardy boys um as well as some money i think um uh, i don't know but it was very uncomfortable because there was lots of like her managerial services wink wink and it's like whoa no, no, what? Yeah. like are we uh are we actually you know, giving away what we think we are. And so that's what I mean, especially in the 90s in the sort of attitude era where it was like, women are managers, wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, not, not as, not, it was not a role necessarily of respect. Um, mm-hmm. It would make, it would, it could be very false empowerment. The idea of like, oh, the woman is sort of the brains behind the male operation. Again, Trish Stratus, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. starting with TNA, um, Testin Albert. It's right um, there. (laughs) um, You know, they at least were trying to say, oh, they are also the brains behind the operation, but we never really saw it. 
I, yeah. I think is the point. Um, it was really just a shallow excuse. Um, and that's unfortunate that, you know, again, there are exceptions. Like you mentioned, Sherry Martell, uh, absolutely, I think, sort of goes beyond this. She is not this... She is definitely the mouthpiece, and she's very active. She has agency outside that. But um, and, and the recent yeah, example it's, it's, it's would been be a really tough for them. The right? recent example would be Lana with Rusev, who right, during absolutely. during their run together was was very much a manager, but mm-hmm. few few and far in between. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's unfortunate. In some ways, you know, right now WWE's excuse me, very big on the sort of women's revolution uh, and and trying to update their presentation of women wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far doing pretty well uh, with some stumbling blocks. They had the wonderful women's tournament, uh, which I thought went swimmingly. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if they've done that with managers yet, but they might if you watch NXT, the new uh, Zelina Vega, yep, yep. Uh, the sort of manager for... Um, uh, Andrade, Cien Almas. So far, I'm kind of, I'm very hopeful about that because the, that might be one of the like, her sex appeal hasn't really come into it that much. Mm-hmm. She's been doing just sort of normal heel uh, manager things, uh, and like with distractions, but it's not about her body so much. Um, and also, she actually has a sense of agency and control over. Uh, the wrestler that she's managing, Andrade Cien Almas, the whole storyline is he's sort of this party boy, and so he doesn't take his sort of act seriously when he's in a match, and she kind of keeps him on target and, mm-hmm. you know, has led to success. So his success is directly tied to her managerial skills, uh, not to her sex appeal or something like that. It's her ability to sort of keep him focused. Um, so I'm excited by that prospect. I think there there could be some cool things there that we really, it's crazy to think that that's like not new, but rare. And that's unfortunate, but like to that, that character is like, huh? Like that, <laughs> why haven't I seen this that much before? So um, I think there's room for them to do that, uh, which would be nice. You know, you can you can have sort of new female characters across the board, not just and, as wrestlers. And and I mean to 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 build on that. I mean, if you are going to commit to this idea of a women's revolution in wrestling, um, you do going back to the beginning of the conversation need to focus on the functions beyond just the wrestlers, mm-hmm. um, and really explore that as as your mode of storytelling. Um, so I think we, we have reached the point in the podcast where uh, we can talk about our just our favorite managers. If, you, if you've got anyone you want to devote some time to, and I, I, know, I know the obvious person that we're going to have to devote time to, but before we get yeah. to him, is there, sure. is there anyone you know, want to devote a little attention to? Uh, I, don't, I really don't know. I mean, we've kind of we've hit a lot of mm-hmm. uh, you know, really important ones. I mean, you know, some of, you know, a lot of them you have to take sort of at the era they were. Um, you know, Theodore oh, Long. Oh God, yeah. Oh, jeez. Let's well, let's not do that. I mean, we <laughs> can. Um, I mean, like Paul Bearer is delightful, very cartoony. Um, like you know, literally with the sort of like Groucho Marx style, like yeah. makeup and everything. Oh but, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good job, good job. Um, but I mean, it it worked for that character. Like, 
you know, it worked. It, in some ways, it made The Undertaker more believable uh, for such an over-the-top character, um, but also more grounded because this guy's so crazy. Um, I mean, he just... It also gave The Undertaker character room to stretch because in his original mode, he was so narrow. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, and yeah, if you remember, you know, in sort of his earliest federations, it was almost like a more like a sort of Wild West sort of Undertaker and things. And, um, you know, it was hard to get like, okay, well, what else does he do? Um, And and Paul Bearer could do that. Um, And uh, yeah, and I mean, Paul Bearer, you needed to like all, do all the things that we've talked about for Undertaker to switch a lot allegiance, uh, especially when you bring in Kane, um, you know, uh, giving them something to play off of. So, I mean, I, I will forever love Paul Barrett just because his, you know, I, I feel like he was, you know, a sort of old school, but also ahead of his time in the sort of like, we can play this up and it's okay. Um, you know, not everything has to be uh, the most serious. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, that I'll, I'll go with that. I'm sure there's some I'm forgetting, but uh, I, think, I mean, he's definitely the first that comes to mind. How about you? I think the one that I want to get to before we get to our big guy is uh, I want to talk about Diamond Dallas Page, actually. Okay. Um, right. Because I think we are so used to thinking of Page as a wrestler now because of yeah. what him, he did in the mid to late nineties. Yeah, it's it's he, it's he, it's DDP. <laughs> um, but um, Page began his career as a manager and managed for many many years. Uh, he he had uh, he had his own stable. Uh, oh God, what was it called? It was the Diamond. Uh, not not exchange. <laughs> no, not the diamond. Yeah, it was. Was, was it the diamond exchange? I think it was. Yeah, it was. I, I know that he had Scott Hall wrestling for him as the yeah, diamond, no, it's diamond exchange. The diamond yeah. exchange. I would, yeah, um, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Hennig okay. was part of it. Scott Hall as the okay. diamond stuff. A spiritual successor as the diamond mine. That's the not diamond. A... Yeah, diamond exchange is better. Way better. Um, but was a manager in WCW for for many many years, and then made himself into a wrestler and thanks the snake and others yeah and i I just always find him an interesting case study insofar as this this is going to be a a weird comparison and maybe not a not a good one but it would be like if enzo amore three (laughs) years from now turned into a really good wrestler (laughs) Um, it right, pro- right. probably isn't going to happen. Yeah, but, yeah, it's only in fiction, but okay. Yeah, but I mean, Paige was—he was the DDP character. He was brash. He—he he was dancing around. He had his big hair and just this this gaudy character who then took all of that and packaged it up and then put wrestling skills on top of it. And it's—you mentioned you know guys who sort of age out of being a wrestler and become a successful man. Like Freddie Blassie is a good example of that. But you don't see it go the other way too often, where a guy starts as a manager. Um, and then, I mean, Raven might be another example oh, of that. I, I did think about bringing up Raven, it, it, particularly in the fact that he... 
Well, I mean, he, he also, yeah, he started off as a manager, uh, you know, even as Johnny Polo and, and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when he was in the Raven character, he was always a wrestler, but he was more so a manager. Yeah, with the so flock. He, the flock would do all the wrestling. Um, I, I absolutely thought about him also because of how, I mean, I always want to talk about Raven. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, because, you know, he, I think he was always great at, bringing in a trope and sort of pushing it to a different place. Um, you know, and he would sometimes a manager who would never talk and it's like, it's almost like a bet. Like, let's see if you can do it. Um, and I loved it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he, that's a great, yeah. There, there are these, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, sort of blurred lines or these like, uh, border cases where it's like, we could kind of consider him both a manager and a, a wrestler, sometimes even at the same time. Um, All right, talk about Paul. I know you want to talk about Paul. I mean, I guess. I mean, he's he's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, more you know, the, you know, Paul Paul Heyman is a guy who's maybe had the longest lasting career as a manager. Uh, I mean, you could distinguish, you know, for a while when he's running ECW, he's not really doing that role, uh, though he was kind of like the manager for still, the ocean yeah. uh, and would still be an on-air character and things. Um, but, you know, if anything, you know, if Heenan, I guess, is the classic model or the modern model, uh, then Heyman is the, like, contemporary or like postmodern model yeah Uh, paul Heyman is the postmodern manager in some ways yeah like if we you know if billy sandow is classic and Mm -hmm. uh and bobby heenan is sort of golden era then yeah then sort of uh paul paul Heyman or paulie dangerously dangerously. um is is sort of the next level Uh, again because he shares a lot with with heenan in the fact that he was often the centerpiece of many of the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and again, also pushing the bounds of how we think about it. It's not just, he's not just a manager, you know, when it was the dangerous Alliance, uh, he was the CEO or an agent <laughs> Where again with Brock Lesnar, he's an advocate, um, you know, and, and again, he chooses these things uh, purposefully um, one to have us push beyond, like to kind of wink to us and say, I'm not those other guys. Like I'm going to do something different. Um, and again, give him sort of a lot of stories beyond that. I mean, in some ways he's not been doing like his work with Lesnar is fine. Uh, or at least contemporary Lesnar. Um, I think like, I think my favorite era of Paul Heyman is baseball cap Paul Heyman. I'll put it <laughs> um, like, I, I like that he tries to sort of change things up. But, um, yeah, like, essentially he, I mean, it's almost like he runs on autopilot, but he's so damn good it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. he's so blatant in his role as my job is to get you to buy the pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And it's almost refreshing. I mean, it's it's annoying, but it's almost refreshing. Like, he'll be so blunt in this, and this is like contemporary Heyman of like, you're going to want to tune in because you'll see 
my client do this yeah. and it's just like oh my god like you are it is the most hard of cells but only someone like him could get away with that because yeah. because despite all those sort of changes he still builds on that idea that like when my client does well i do well and thus that is my motivation. So mm-hmm. unlike Heenan, who would usually have more of a personal motivation, Heyman's still trying to fit. And again, it's that sort of postmodern WWE way of like everything's about money and the business <laughs> that kind of gets old hat. But that's what he's working in. That's the era he's working in. Um, so he's always going to emphasize that. It becomes a bit limiting, um, but it's the time frame that he's in. And I think he knows that. And I, I like the, you know, like Heenan, he has this this shamelessness about him, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is, again, it's very refreshing to, to see someone play it that broad right now. Yeah. Um, I think w- for me, the uh, of all of Paul's stuff, the stuff that I actually find most interesting uh, was his entire run with CM Punk in 2012 and 2013 because punk is another example of a guy who didn't need a manager um in in any way shape or form but the the dynamic of having paul with him um to a degree when punk was playing the heel it made it okay to hate punk at a moment where um it was not easy to hate punk because he 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 was so hot as a baby face and then you pair Paul with him, and I think one of the signs that you're doing a good job as a heel in wrestling is when the fans respect you enough to boo you for the right reasons. <laughs> and Punk very easily, at that point in his career, could have been the guy who um, he was so hot as a babyface that when he made the turn, as much as he put into it, you still would have had the big cheering section for CM Punk. He would not have been the evil heel. But having Heyman there as the counterpoint to that and having the dynamic between them, it because they were so loathsome together, <laughs> it made it okay to hate Punk. And it made it okay like to to get him to a point where you know, when he comes after Paul Bearer dies and Punk comes oh, out yeah. throwing the urn around. Um, it had gotten to a point where you could hate, like, it's crazy to say this, but you could hate him for being such an asshole. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I like that period of Heyman. And then the, the part of that that I also think is interesting is that that's about the same time when he was also managing Curtis Axel. And a little Cesaro. bit after that, yeah, and a complete and, failure of that transitive property we talked about. Yeah, and I don't know if that was Paul's fault or the wrestler's fault or the booker's fault or, or what, yeah. but... What's interesting about that is, I mean, the punk example is great. I mean, the story sort of goes that Heyman knew he wasn't really needed, and mm-hmm. the only reason he mostly did it was because he liked punk and he liked doing stuff with punk and i mean i don't know how much of that is just story but it shows like Mm -hmm. he was enjoying himself and you would literally have segments and again this is sort of turning the trope on its head where Heyman wouldn't speak like his whole role was to like hold the belt behind punk as he walked to the ring or do the like watch check 
uh, to see it's that it's clobbering time and just to sort of react. And I think that's what Heyman was getting out of it was he saw an opportunity to, again, do something new where my job here is not as a manager and my job here isn't to sort of do what you can't do. My I'm job is a only, prop. Right. I am only here to like heighten what you're already doing. And that's cool. We never really get that ever. Because the idea is, if someone doesn't need it, he could be better used elsewhere. And I think that's kind of what happens with the shift to Curtis Axel and something else, where it was like, oh, we could better use Heyman here. But that was not what we were enjoying from Heyman at that time. Um, And yeah, it was just, it was a weird, like, you don't see it enough. And I mean, I think that can transition us to maybe maybe kind of wrapping this up in the fact that there isn't much, you know, we, we just talked a lot and there are modern examples, but I, especially not that long ago, there was probably a time in, in WWE where there were almost no managers, at least in yeah. this capacity that we think of. And there's certainly less than there have been. Um, and that's not a bad thing um, necessarily. Uh, I don't think we need more, but I'm curious your thoughts as to, why you think that might be um you know is there uh just a sort of does this thing sort of cycle come in waves uh or you know you know why why do you think there was a period where it wasn't as common or expected to have uh these sort of non-wrestler uh sort of figures uh always appearing in these storylines i think there there is um and there's a positive and a negative side to this. But I think one reason is that the expectations of what it takes to be a WWE wrestler are very different now. Mm-hmm. Um, WWE has a robust developmental program during which you are not only expected to develop as a wrestler, but to develop as a character and how you present yourself as a character mm-hmm. and to build your persona and to have a, a baseline level of of competence as a as a promo as a character in terms of how you hold yourself I means Sami Zayn for instance Sami Zayn's not a a great talker Sami's got a good fired up babyface mm-hmm. promo in him once in a while yeah. but I mean most of Sami's career he's El Generico and yeah. he's running around yelling Ole like this is not what he had but he comes in he is built as this this uh, this underdog character and by the time he gets to the point where he's on that stage. Could a manager add something? Yeah, but he's not absolutely necessary. And so the the times when you see a manager deployed now will be for someone who um, e- either has a rationale for it deeply rooted in character. And I think the the uh, Andrade Cien almost example that you gave earlier was a really good one. Uh, or it'll be a, a guy who... Um, isn't quite there in one way or another, but has other attributes that are good enough to, to accelerate him in a certain mm-hmm. way. Um, or there, there could be, again, what, what's the line between manager and wrestler? Like, mm-hmm. you can talk about when, when Braun Strowman comes up as a wrestler. Mm-hmm. He is super, super raw. And yeah. just, he, he's, it's, it's easy to look at Braun now and be really happy with where he is, but he was not yeah. there. When he came up, and and Bray Wyatt was his wrestler manager for Mm -hmm. a good long while. 
Um, so mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's it's partially um, th- there is a, a convention argument insofar as it is a little bit of a dated convention and a dated role. But I think the the crux of it is just that wrestlers, as a general statement, are more well rounded today, yeah. and that makes them less distinctive in some ways. Hmm. But it yeah. it eliminates that the obvious need for the role. Not to say there are not things the manager can't bring, but the need is less obvious. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, way to frame it. I think you're right. I mean, part of it is, you know, we are in a talent glut right now. Like, you are not hurting for talent uh, in terms of what WWE wants to go find somebody from the indie scenes or if, mm-hmm. uh, again, they have the Performance Center and they're teaching you all these things. So if you're missing one of those, that's a problem. It's not like, ah, oh, you're missing one, but we can make do, we can hide it. It's like, mm-hmm. mm, you really got to have the complete package. Uh, or as close to it as possible. Um, but, of course, there are... Ex- so, in, in some ways, a sort of manager is almost like spice uh, in mm. cooking. Like, you want to use a little bit if something's too bland, but if you use too much or if you put it on something that's already got some spice, it's just going to clash or okay. cover it up. That was my um, fear when when Lana and Rusev debuted, because mm. like Lana was so obviously... Like, she was there as a manager, and Rusev's, I mean, Rusev probably speaks English just fine, but it's, he, she was filling a role in a stereotype. Yeah. Um, and my, my concern was that, okay, when the split happens, um, they're they're covering something for Rusev and he's going to be overexposed and he's not going to carry for. That's before I realized that Rusev is secretly the WWE's biggest baby face and that we should oh be cheering him every time and he he's comes the down funniest that guy on the planet. He's um, fantastic. And well, yeah, when he first started, he was literally, you know, the Bulgarian brute was literal. He would come out with a board and like smash it and he yep. wore bare feet to the ring. Um, and so that transitions to a last thing I'll bring in really quickly at the end here is the sort of sub header of managers that are also handlers um, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, sometimes the manager role wasn't just to cover up a baby face who couldn't talk much, but to fulfill the character role because the character we didn't want talking. And this is a very outdated trope of the sort of savage, uh, like your umanga, uh, yeah. um, umanga as, uh, Steve, uh, William Regal would say, um, but literally a sort of mouthpiece for a sort of uh, character who did not speak uh, Mm -hmm. because they were a savage or from another country. Um, That's certainly dated, uh, no doubt. However, it doesn't mean that it can't serve a particular function. You bring in Paul Ellering for the authors of... Yeah, yeah, that's a good I don't think that means the authors of Pain can't talk. It's just the fact that they're more intimidating when they don't. Yeah, it, it, so, it communicates about them like they're not there to talk. Right. And so that, I think, is the future. Not the handler, but the future <laughs> of like, of because that's a very outdated concept. Yeah. But the idea of it's not that the manager hides something, but how can we use them specifically for the type of character or the type of story we're doing. So again, like 
Cien Almas having this manager who has a particular role to rein in his party boy tendencies, or like the authors of Pain, uh, just because they're you know not savages, but they're just so sort of fight focused that they need a sort of calming presence to sort of lay out their plans. Uh, again, that could use some work. It's it's a bit underdeveloped. Uh, I think that's why they're off TV right now. Um, they're trying to figure out like, okay, we don't know what else we're supposed to do with this. Um, but I see that maybe going forward, uh, you know, and that could be super cool. Um, or again, with you know, your whether it's Bray Wyatt or even Eric Young and Sanity, like mm. these characters who are also wrestlers, but you know, are are more mouthpieces for for a stable. Um, you know, there are still uses there. I think we've gone beyond the standard. Like this guy can't talk, we'll just give him throw this manager to him, or this manager's really hot, we'll attach someone to them. Um, yeah, we don't really have that. Uh, maybe the closest other modern examples, maybe Vicky Guerrero, when oh, yeah, she good one. was she, when she was getting mega heat, and they tried to sort of build the Edge La Familia and stuff uh, because that was clear. They were like, she's got mega heat. Let's try to got let's try to siphon way. that off. Um, never really worked, um, but you know they tried their best, and that I think was also an example of you know she was talk about a woman breaking the mold there yeah um, and i think our, vicky guerrero things. is tremendously underappreciated absolutely like holy crap um you know certainly was like a, a figure of agency she wasn't just there to be you know gawked at or anything she had immense power uh um massive heat maybe one of the most pure recent examples of a heat magnet mm-hmm. that i don't know if anyone's reached her levels Recently, like you always have somebody cheering, but she got pure heat. Um, and it was great. And it was almost amazing because she was not, you know, she was married to Eddie, but that was not like what she wanted to do. And it just like, it was sort of amazing. Um, and so, yeah, things, more things like that, where they're maybe not exactly what you expect. Um, but yeah, then that had some faults where it's like, oh, let's put her with Dolph Ziggler. Let's put her with... <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. Like, that doesn't always work. So maybe that's the last other point, you know, part of why it doesn't work. The manager has to work with the wrestler. You know, it has to fit. Um, mm-hmm. And if you have a very blank face wrestler, you can kind of throw anyone there. But all of these wrestlers kind of come up fully formed. So you can't just sort of toss them in with somebody and expect it to work. Yeah, it's, it's tougher to... It's tougher to just slap two people together now um, mm. in, in the way that maybe you could have gotten away with. Because, like, in the 80s, if some monster heel comes in from out of town to challenge uh, Hulk Hogan, it doesn't matter who he is. Uh, Bobby Heenan's managing him. Yeah, um, I'll talk about it. And it'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, but we want we want a more cohesive sort of story here. So um, yeah. I think, yeah, hope, hope they still – hope they stick around. But, uh, you know – I don't know if I don't think we'll ever get one at the level of, of Heenan or something like that where they were the ultimate attraction. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to a level where a manager is the ultimate attraction again. Yeah. I think it's a good place to, to ring out the main section and let's uh, let's move on to our homework assignments. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and start. Um, get it. 
Uh, I don't think I brought this up because I don't think I had, had seen it in our commentary. This is a bit more about commentary than managers, but thinking of Heenan and things like that. Uh, and do stop me if I've told this one, but I don't believe so. Um, there is a short documentary on uh, Vimeo called Rudy and Dez. Have I no, mentioned this? You about, not. Um, I don't think so. Uh, it's called Rudy and Dez, and it's, it's two friends who go to wrestling and one of them is blind. He, uh, I forget the exact story. Like he, he sort of, uh, you know, became blind. And so the story is essentially his friend does his own commentary for his, his blind friend and they go to the live shows and he's doing like everything. And it talks about how his friend had to like learn everything. Like he had to basically train himself to become a commentator for his one friend um, call all the moves and I found out about this because I, I saw some thread or something someone had posted like oh I went to this live show like a pay-per-view and the guy behind me was like calling everything and at first I thought it was annoying and then I'm like he's really good and then it was they found out it was this guy and that's just like what he does so it's really cool it's like 10 minutes or 15 minutes um, where yeah it's just sort of uh the story of this friendship based around wrestling uh, and this one friend who sort of like learns everything he can just so he can uh, share it uh, with his friend. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a really nice uh, heartwarming story uh, and sort of all emphasizes uh, the importance of commentary to sort of to tell a story and that sometimes that's all you need. Uh, and you know, also just being there and the sounds and all of that can build that experience uh, just on its own. Uh, so it's really nice. Rudy uh, and Dez, D E S. So Rudy and Dez. Again, that's on Vimeo uh, for free. It should be easy to find. Uh, really nice, nice little piece. Good rec. Oh, and, uh, and towards the end, uh, just to give you a little like the whole thing is towards the end the big surprise is uh jim ross sort of uh shows up uh and they're sort of blown away spoilers Um, man and uh he gets to like call a match or does some calling and and jim ross is in his normal like kind of droll like that's not that bad (laughs) yeah it's it's great that's good Mm -hmm. so my homework today i i think i mentioned this during our women's wrestling episode but i don't believe it was my recommendation um i've been watching a lot of mystery science theater 3000 lately (laughs) and so i am going to recommend uh mst3k racket girls okay Um, now correct me if i'm wrong this is your second mst3k recommendation in a row which i'm not which i am not complaining about just to be clear like i said i've (laughs) I was uh, I was sick all, right, all weekend. All right. I watched right. uh, I watched several episodes, but perfect ra- perfect sick viewing. Yes, uh, Racket Girls. Uh, so okay. Claire, uh, okay. featuring several women's wrestling stars of the fifties, uh, Clara Mortensen probably being the the biggest name of them all. It's a terrible nineteen fifties uh, crime film. Where, uh, believe it or not, the the central dramatic element is: Will this lady wrestler throw a match uh, that uh, her her criminal manager has asked her to throw, or will she, for the integrity of the sport, stand yeah. up and fight? Oh God! Um, and it is 
it, it is a an hilarious time capsule of uh, not just what women's wrestling uh, was at that period of time, but how it was presented, how it was supposed to be, and kind of that that element of kayfabe in there. Like, no, no, we have to preserve the illusion that this is... I think there actually is a moment where when uh, one of the wrestlers is asked to throw the match, she says, yeah. wrestling is one of the only sports left that has any integrity uh, in it. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. it. It's such a. It's so funny how often that's the storyline in any wrestling-related film or like uh, non-wrestling medium, uh, and it's almost like poking fun at it. Like the storyline is somebody's gonna throw a wrestling match, and it's like, oh my god! Uh, it was the same in tag team, which I recommended year uh, mm-hmm. ages can't, ago. Can't throw the uh, match. They, yeah, yeah, our heroes refuse to throw the match. I love that. I love it. And I haven't seen that. I'm going to check it out. I need some more MST3K yeah. in my life. Uh, Racket Girls, also called Blonde Pickup and Pin Down Girls. Pin Down Girls? Pin, right. pin Down Girls. We'll take it, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. There's nothing I, in the rule book that says you can't name true. it that. That's true. <laughs> All right, I think uh, I think now is the part of the show where we say good night to you, yes. uh, listener. Yeah, uh, that's right. No matter what time of day you're listening to this, it's time for bed. Yep, get get some sleep, and we'll see you uh, when you're nice and rested. Yeah, maybe in your dreams. <laughs> This is this is the dream team coming to you uh, for Smarten Up. I am and will continue to be Stephen Claypool. You can find me on Twitter at S-T-E-F-A-N-C-L-A-Y-P-O-O-L. Um, and I uh, am the forever Jerusalemus. I'm on Twitter at D-Z-O-L-I-D-E-S. The forever. Bye. Wow. Yeah. I was trying to be big. <laughs> it was yes anding. Yes and. I told you, I've been working on my yes ands. Yes and. <laughs> <laughs>